The truth is, this week we're going to discuss the parasha. But I'd like to just start with, you know, it's a little bit of a hard time for women these few weeks. No? Right? A hard time for women these few weeks? No? Preparing, cleaning, buying, shopping. No? No? I'm nuts? Okay, thank you. Good, okay, there you go. That sounds more right. So basically, we get to this time of year, and many women, like even just the thought of this time of year, starts to get them nervous and starts to get them afraid about, like I said, it's clothing every kid, it's cleaning every room. There's a lot, a lot to do and a lot of work, and a lot of people look at this season and like roll their eyes like, oh man, now it's Ere Pesach time is coming, and they dread this whole month. We'd like to discuss that. And this week's parasha is parasha, double parasha, by Yakel and Pekudeh. And basically what happens in these two parashiot is that we learned in previous weeks about the Mishkan and the vessels of the Mishkan. And this week we learn about the actual construction of the Mishkan. And a lot of the Pesukim are very similar to before. There's not a lot of commentary. Rashi is very, very small in these parasha because... Like most of it is sounds almost like a repeat. But what we're going to be introduced to today, and we're going to discuss today, is the man who built the Mishkan. Do you know what his name was? Very good, thank you. His name was, the Pasuk tells us, Vayor Moshe Bnei Yisrael, he told the Bnei Yisrael, Ru kara Hashem b'shem Hashem chose the man named B'Tzalel, Ben Uri, Ben Hur, the Mate Yuda. He chose Bitzalel, who is the son of Uri, that's his father's name. Chur is his grandfather's name from the tribe of Yehuda. And so the first question that we have today is, that normally when you say someone's name, if you ever prayed for someone, you say the person's name and their, or their parent's name, one parent. You don't ever say the grandfather. Why over here are we interested in who his grandfather is? Why are we interested and why is it important to tell us which tribe he's from? And why does Rashi make a point of telling us who his great-grandmother was? Rashi says, who is Hur? Miriam Haya. He was the, Hur was the son of Miriam, which means that Bitzalel's great-grandmother was Miriam. So my question is, a few questions. Why do we need to know who, uh, that he was a grandson of Hur? Why do we need to know he's from the tribe of Yehuda? And why do we need to know, from Rashi at least, that he's a great-grandson of Miriam? Why are any of those... In point. And my second question, that was like a five-part question. My first, second question is that it says, you know when the Mishkan, the vessels were actually completed? You know when it was completed? It was completed on Chanukah time. That's why the name of Chanukah is two names. Chanukah means that they rested on the 25th. Or Chanukah comes to Chanukah time. that they really like established the Mishkan. But when was it really inaugurated? When was it really inaugurated? So it says that it was the Torah, Hashem told the Jewish people to wait till the month of Nisan. That means it was really finished Hanukkah time, but they waited till now to actually inaugurate the Mishkan. Why did they wait till now? So Chachamim told us he waited till the time when Yitzchak Avinu was born. My question on that is what relevance does Yitzchak Avinu's birth have to do with the construction of the Mishkan? So we're going to try to answer all these questions. 
And to answer this question, I'll tell you a well-known Ramban, very important Ramban. The Ramban tells us that there was, after B'Tzalel, there were other men that were involved, other people that were involved, men were involved in the construction of the Mishkan. What talent did you have to have to be part of the team? What strength did you have to have? What tests did you have to take before to determine if you were worthy to, do you have to know half of Shas? Do you have to be a great builder? Or a great seamstress. What talent did you have to have? What was required in order to be part of the team that constructed the Mishkan? So the Pasuk says, the Pasuk says, Every man, call ish asher libo. Any man whose heart picked himself up to go. So Rashid, the Rabban says, what does that mean his heart picked himself up? He says, we did not need, need very talented people. We did not need very wise people. We did not need people with unbelievable intellect and unbelievable knowledge. No. The people that were chosen were people that were Nisa'oli bore people that had the heart to be a part. People who picked themselves up and chose that I can do this. I want to be involved in this project. I can work. I can sacrifice. I'm really to be a part. He was taken. All you needed to be a part of the construction of the Mishkan was Mesirut Nefesh, was self-sacrifice, was the willingness to give of your time, give of your effort, give of yourself to be a part of the Mishkan. The Pasuk tells us, when talking about the construction of the first Beit HaMikdash, there's a Pasuk in David in Tehilim that says, Mizmor Shir Chanukat Habayit David. Mizmor is the song of the establishment of the Beit HaMikdash of David. There's a problem with this pasuk. You know what the problem is? It's Moshe, the, the song of the establishment of the Beit Hamikdash of David. What's wrong with that pasuk? Exactly. If David didn't lay one brick, so what does that mean with a song that David sang when he built the Beit Hamikdash? He never built it. The answer is the Chachamim says that no, David did build it. Because David was the one who prayed for it. David was the one who cried for it. David was the one who sacrificed for it. David was the one who used his sweat and his effort in order to be able to build it. And so David HaMelech is considered the builder of the Mishkan, even though he didn't put down one brick, builder of the Beit HaMikdash. Even though he didn't put down one brick, he built the whole thing. If we look, let me give you a little history of Khur. What happened to Khur? Anyone know what happened to Khur? Yeah, very, you know? Yeah, what? No, well, that's true. But there's another story. Yes, is that when we said last week, we told you the story. The Jewish people, they heard, well, the people heard about the, that God isn't coming. They got nervous. They got anxious. They got frustrated. They got depressed. And it basically became a mob scene. The first person they went to to build something, to do something, was Khur. They told Hur, build us something. Hur said, I don't know what you're talking about. Moshe is coming back. We still have God. We still have Moshe. I'm not doing anything. He says, well, no. Absolutely, you have to. It's nervous. It's crazy. Build us something. Hur said, no, I'm not. They got up and they killed him. That's Hur. Let me tell you a little bit about Miriam. Miriam was a woman who, when her father had separated from her mother, and her father said, you know what, it's a, there's a decree against boys being born, and so therefore I don't want to be with, with my wife anymore because I don't want to have any more children. Miriam came to her father and he said, you're worse than Paro. Why are you worse? Paro only decreed on the boys. 
you're decreeing on both the boys and the girls. And so the father listened to advice of his little daughter, and he got remarried, and he had a son named Moshe. And then when that boy was born, and it was dangerous, <coughs> excuse me, a little under the weather, when the, uh, when the boy was born, and they took him to the river, who was the one who went out in danger to put her brother to the river? Miriam. Who was the one who stayed and watched to see what happened to her brother? Miriam. Miriam had that midah, had the characteristic of sacrifice. Which was the first tribe when the Jewish people were sitting at the edge of the Yamsuf? And there was no place to go. Not back, not forward, not right, not left, not up, nowhere to go. Who was the first tribe to jump in? Yeah. Tribe of Yehuda. And so therefore, when the Torah describes for us Bitzalel, it tells us where he came from. Bitzalel is not just, oh, him and his father. Bitzalel came from Chur, who sacrificed his life for God. Came from the tribe of Yehuda, who were the first people who jumped in for God. And as she tells us, and oh, by the way, his great-grandmother was Miriam, who was the one who pushed her father, who sacrificed that her brother should be born. You know, I was thinking about it the other last week. I gave that class that I gave last week a few times. So I'll tell you the truth. By the time I was done, I was like a little depressed myself. <laughs> and I said, you know, it's a little bit of a tough subject. It's like, you know, you don't walk out exactly feeling great. I said, you know, sometimes I started to think about it. Most of what we do in this class is talk about problems. We're not talking about we find an issue and we try to discuss the issue and to some degree deal with the issue. And we never think about really how great we are. And we never think about how much we've been able to accomplish and really what we do. So I thought about it a little. I spent a little time. I said, let me think about it. The other day, is that right? Okay. Okay. Um, I know the feeling. Trust me. Like I said, I was like, Almost unable to prepare here. I read the other day, there was this article in a magazine, a very religious magazine, about this rabbi in the Bronx. And he has a shul. And basically they talk about the community in the Bronx. You saw the article? Community in the Bronx. The numbers that they said in the article sound crazy. They said there used to be like 450 shuls in the Bronx. I think I really thought that was, that was wrong even. It doesn't sound normal. It doesn't sound... I guess they're including conservative and reform. It sounds crazy, right? That's what it said. I don't know. And they said there's like 150,000 Jews lived there. Again, it doesn't sound right. Maybe they meant the whole city. Let's just even take the whole city, okay? Okay, but even so, right now, you know what that shul, this, this rabbi is the rabbi of the shul for like 50 years. Now the shul has like 12 people that they could put together. And the article says, where's everybody else? Is that all the younger people either passed away or moved out? And that's not really true. It's true about some of the community. You know what really happened? Is that most of those two grandchildren aren't Jewish. That's what really happened. And that what really happened is most of them came to America and became fully integrated into America. And by now, 50 years later, their grandchildren are named Smith. And they have trees in their house in December. That's what they're people. That's what's the real accurate description of what happened to most Jewish communities in this country. There are cities in New Jersey that used to be all Jewish. And their grandparents, they all still live there, but none of them are Jewish anymore. And the truth, when you think about what started our community, you think about a few things about the commitment that our grandparents have. You know, a lot of people today, they get religious, and they think like they invented religion. 
And like they're the first person to come up with Torah and Mitzvot. And they don't realize that it's their grandparents who actually had a lot to do with what they became. Now you say, what do you mean? I'm much more religious than my grandfather. You are. True. But your grandfather, what he had to do to just go to shul on Shabbat was tremendous sacrifice. And you know how first Minyan started? You know how their first Minyan on Shabbat? You know how first Minyan started? Yeah, exactly. Is that men had to, they prayed from 7 to 9, went to work, 9.30. Now that's crazy. It is crazy. And I said this Saturday, someone said, Rabbi, tell me that's good. No, I'm not telling you that's good. But I'll tell you that those men, those men still kid. Many men who had, didn't keep kosher, didn't, but they still wore tefillin every morning. We have a culture in our community to give tzedakah. It's part of the culture. You get up, every kid knows, kid can go and not care about anything, doesn't care about religion, all he cares about is making money. He knows the first thing he has to do when he makes money is he has to give money. That's a culture in the community that we just have. It's automatic that anyone knows that if they have, they have a responsibility to give. That's from what was put in. So I mentioned to someone the other day, I said, you know, we have a lot of kids who sit around the Sidarim. And they're not really involved at the Seder on Pesach. That's the truth. She, so she says to me, why? I said, you know, because there's like 50 people at the Seder. So you have a few uncles and a few in the front and grandpa and a few people reading the Haggadah. And the teenagers are sitting on the back on some round table talking about their suit and their draft picks. They're not discussing. <laughs> they don't care about the Haggadah. So the person says to me, you know, that's like a shame. Like maybe they should make smaller Sedarim. I said, absolutely not. I said, because they see that. And they one day want to be that. And every kid wants to be part of our community's tradition. That culture was implemented by people who came to this country and sacrificed. People who maybe don't learn as much as we do and don't know as much as we do and don't have the same meticulous detail of halakha like we have. But they had that. And they're the foundation that we're really built on. And the truth is you could be religious, you could be way more religious. You came from those people. You came from those people that sweated, that worked their brains off to, to support their family, that when the yeshiva opened, even though it was a ridiculous idea, they sent their children. That was big sacrifice. They say, what do you mean? It's a sacrifice to send to Sunday to yeshiva? Now it's not. I mean, it is. It's hard to pay, but it's not, it's not a big deal. Everyone does it. But 50 years ago, it was a big deal. And if you did it, you were a person who sacrificed with Torah and Mitzvot. You were Khur. You were Miriam. You were a person who, and you might say, what do you mean? My grandchild's going to know ten times more. He's got hats and peot and tzitzit and I don't know what. All true. Very nice. It came from you. It came from your sacrifice. It came from their commitment. And that's what the Torah is telling us. You want to know why B'Tzalel was the one who was able to stand up, be a part of this? It's not because of how great it was. We have to tell you about where it came from. We have to tell you about the seeds and the sacrifice that was put into those seeds that bore this fruit. And that bore this person that can build the Beit HaMikdash. We say, the Mishkan. We say, You have to love Hashem, your God. Your heart and all your nefesh is your whole body. And all your money. So recently, commentary says, they take the word Ve'ahavta and you unscramble it. The Vav, Hey, Aleph. I'm not saying it right. Ve'ahavta. Vav, Aleph, Hey, Vet. Taf. If you unscramble it, it spells Ha'avot, the forefathers. Nice, right? It's true. It spells Ha'avot. He says that each one of the forefathers had one of the Bechol Levavichaz or your heart. 
Abraham Avinu sacrificed his heart. I mean, he was going to sacrifice his child. There's nothing closer to your heart than your children. He was willing to sacrifice his heart. V'chol Shecha is your whole body. Yitzchak Avinu was going to sacrifice his body. He was going to get himself killed. V'chol Merodecha was with all your money. Yaakov Avinu had dealings with Lavan and with Esav, and it's continuously about how to, who gets the money, how the money, with the sheep, not... He sacrificed, he served God with his money. Ve'ahavta is telling you the love is in, imbued by the avot. How? We got the heart from Abraham. We got We got the, the body sacrificing yourself from Yitzchak. And your money we got from Yaakov. That's why the Torah, Hashem decided the Mishkan is going to be built on the month that Yitzchak was born. Because Yitzchak sacrificed himself. And we wanted to, in order for this Mishkan to build, in order for this Mishkan to last, it has to be built on those seeds. It has to be built on that foundation of men, of people who were willing to sacrifice. I once read this story. I didn't get to look at it again, so I'm giving you the basic story. There was once they heard in this town of that the Rabbi Rab Chaim Velazhener, who was the famous founder of one of the first yeshivot, in Europe, in the main yeshiva, the Velazhani yeshiva, he was coming to town, and he was going to meet people. And so there were people waiting online to meet the rabbi. And finally, there was a rabbi who was online to meet this Velazhani, and he said, he said, Rabbi, I'm coming to you to talk to you about advice for my yeshiva. He said, what's wrong? He said, you see, I tried to start this yeshiva and open the yeshiva, and, you know, we have some students. I can't really get it together. The students aren't learning well. I don't have enough, that many students. Like, it's not really been that successful of an endeavor. He's, the rabbi says, he says, I'll tell you what your problem is. He says, you see, you open the yeshiva for you. You open the yeshiva in order that you should have a yeshiva. Let me tell you what I did when I opened the Velazhani yeshiva. He says, the first night, the night before they were going to lay the first brick, I went onto that property, and I took a healing book, I put a little rock on the ground, and I sat on the rock, and I prayed. And I cried, and I prayed, and I cried the whole night. And I pray, Hashem, please, let the, the students that come to these walls, let them learn, let them grow, let them change, let me have an impact. I didn't build the yeshiva for me. I built it with my tears for them. He says, it depends how you do it. If you understand what you're doing this month, this month is the most important month that was for women in the whole year. It's the most important month. Not because, oh, you get every kid the right outfit that matches the hat. No. Is the reason why the month is important is because this month you really have to sacrifice. And it's really hard. And it's real hard work. Those seeds are going to make great children. It's not people who just go through the mind, you know what, I'll have my party plan or someone else or my personal shop or buy my kids clothing. No. It's going out and it's packing days in and it's working hard and it's staying late and Sundays and Saturday nights and week and just... The extra effort and all that sweat and all that toil, that's what builds your family. That's your opportunity to create bitzaleos. Bitzaleos don't come from nowhere. They come from mothers cleaning underneath the couch. That's how your children are built. That's how they're built. When you're going and you're moving over the bed and you're going through the drawer three times and you go to the store and you buy an outfit and they don't like it and you bring it back and you buy two more and you bring it back again and you drive yourself nuts, that's what Miriam was. It's those people. It's those people that build the future. This is the greatest month of the year. It's the month that you have the opportunity, like I said, to build. 
you have the opportunity to create, and when your children see it, and even if they don't see it, the effort that you're putting in is laying those seeds and laying the foundation to build those buildings. The Torah tells us about the people that gave. And there's a little bit of an interesting difference in how Hashem defines the people who were able to give the donations to the Mishkan. The Pasuk says over here, well, first the Pasuk says in Tirumah, the Pasuk says in Tirumah that Hashem said, Me'ed kol ish take from any person who wants to give. Take from any person. Kol ish, anybody. Anybody. And this week's parasha, it says, I want you to take from yourselves, which means I only want it from the Jewish people. What happened? What changed? Why did he first say, take it from anybody, and now he's changing it to say, only take it from the Jewish people? So I saw a nice answer like this. We're going to reanalyze the ego a little bit. Okay? And this is something you may know, but not see how clearly it is defined in the story. When the Egel happened, the Pasuk says that Hashem told the Jewish, the people who constructed the Egel told the Jewish people, Ela Elohecha Yisrael, this is your God, Jewish people. This is your God. Now that terminology sounds strange. Because if we're building it, we should say this is our. our God. That's not what it says. It says this is your God. That sounds strange. When Moshe is up on High Sinai talking to God, and now the Jewish people sin, Hashem comes to Moshe and says, go down. Kishichet amecha, because your nation sinned. Who's your nation? It's our nation. And then, so you say, okay, maybe it's Moshe's nation. Very nice. But then a few pesukim later, when Moshe prays for the Jewish people, he tells God, Lama Why are you angry at your nation? I don't get it. I thought it was Moshe's nation. Now it's God's nation? What is this? Is this, oh, take care of your son, take care of your daughter? What is this? What's going on here? Why is it if they're saying your God, then he's saying your nation, and Hashem say, he's saying back to Hashem, your nation? What's happening? What? So, let's see. Now, there's more to it. Is that when the Jewish people left Egypt, they were riding high. Things were good. Jewish people looked like they were going into all their glory. They were going to become the most powerful nation. They were able to overcome the most powerful nation at the time. They were riding high. There were a group of people who wanted to join. They were called the Erevrath. Moshe came to God and said, please, accept these people. They want to join the Jewish people. God said, don't take them. Moshe said, what are you talking about? They're people. They want to be a part of the Jewish people. They want to join us. They have nice intent, good intent. Let's take them. God says, no. They're telling you, don't take them. Moshe says, I don't understand. They're people. They have the right idea. They have the right thing. They want to become a part of our people. How can I not take them? Hashem said, okay, you know what? If you want, it's your business. You take them. And Moshe took them. Some say it was 40,000, some say it was 120,000 people, some say even more than that, that joined the Jewish people that were called the Erev Rav. Now, when all the problems started to happen, and Moshe is laid, and the Satan says he's dead, and they have no leader, who was the first group to lose it? The Erev Rav. And so they built this Egel, and they turned to the Jewish people, and they said, Ela Elohecha Yisrael, this is your God, Jewish people, this is yours. When Moshe was up on high Sinai, God turned to Moshe and he said, Go down, because your nation sinned. It's your boys. This is the group that you wanted to take. This is the group that you said. They have right intent. They're coming for the good thing. Well, you know what? Your nation now sinned. 
Moshe now decided he's going to use that. When he went back to Hashem to pray, he said, okay, I understand why you're angry at me. I understand why you're angry at my nation. But But why are you angry at your nation? What did Jewish people do? I understand my guys, the Erev Rav, they're no good, they're bad, they, they started this whole problem, they caused the whole chaos, understood, blame them, yell at them, scream at them, kill them. But what are you doing? Why are you angry at your nation? And so Moshe saw with the Egel, we got to see the difference. We got to see the difference between the people, who are the people that are just along for the ride, and the people that actually have that commitment, that ability to to really stick and be close to Hashem, even through thick and thin. That's why the Pasuk says that after the whole story of the Egel happened, Moshe prayed to God, he said, V'niflinu ani va'amecha mikol ha'am. Separate me and your nation from the rest of the nation. What does, what does that mean? Separate me and the Jewish people from everybody else. We know the difference now. The Erev Rav can't just come along and say, what's the difference? You guys, us guys, we have the same. No, no, no. Now we know the difference. We know the difference between the people who have that strength and the people that don't. The truth is, when I was thinking about how great our community is and how great we are, I was busy thinking about this this week. I said, you know, the truth is, we've made some tremendous advancements over the past 50 years. You know, they tell me, I wasn't around then, they tell me back years ago, not... Nobody owned a sukkah. How many sukkot did you have in your parents? Maybe there were four or five in the whole community. Lulav and Etrog, they had three in shul, three or two, two with a rabbi, another one was the very, very, very religious man, and that was it. Nobody had a lulav and Etrog. How many people wore leather shoes on Yom Kippur? The whole building. Everybody wore. How many people bought chametz on the last day of Pesach? Everybody. How many people swam or didn't even fast to Shabbat or felt that it ended in the afternoon? Unbelievable. Right? Right? What? There were people. Yeah? No one gave a shalom. The truth is, and a lot of these, listen, a lot of these were before my times. I'll give you one that happened just in the past 10 years. Now, most couples that get married, the truth is, just 10 years ago, it was unheard of. You had to be like really, really, really hardcore religious to do it. Most people got married, went, took the limo to the airport, stayed at hotel in the airport, by, by Vatikin, they were on in Europe. That's what happened. Nowadays, people that are really not that religious, still, almost everyone keeps it. Almost everyone doesn't go away till the right time to go away, and they do a few Sheva Berachot, and they're joining it. The truth is, our community has really advanced. Another thing, when, when people graduated school 20 years ago, how many people actually, like, called a rabbi or even knew a rabbi's phone number? Eh, a few people knew Chambaruch, and that was it. Nowadays, you, most kids have in their phone five rabbis on speed dial. They can ask a question, and the truth is, the questions that we have on Pesach, have, if you ask any rabbi, have upgraded over the past 20 years dramatically. It used to be just, you know, kosher my kitchen. Now people warming drawers and pyrexes and how do I... The people have much more, much more details. The truth is, I'll tell you the truth. Years back, the job of a rabbi was like pretty easy. <laughs> it was true. A rabbi basically, what his job was, he had to in the morning go to shul, give a little 10-minute class on Chok Israel. 
and that was beautiful. On Shabbat, they gave a 10-minute speech in the morning, a half-hour class before Mincha in the afternoon, and that was called a job. That's really what rabbis used to do. Now, almost every rabbi, every rabbi that I know, is worked up to his head. That the truth is, and everyone, they're just, they're teaching, they're learning, class in the morning, classes at night, questions, answers, issues. It's really become dramatic. The people who understood is because there's a lot of people who get it, who understand the sacrifice that our grandparents made and understand the sacrifice that our parents made and understood that their responsibility now is to build on it. It's to continue it. You can't just say, you know, my great-grandmother used to eat out, so I... What are you talking about? For her, the fact that she didn't eat pork was unbelievable. If you're still at that level that you're not eating pork, come on. Your whole job is to take that sacrifice and continue it. And to be able to make yourself better than your parents, so to speak. I don't mean better as better people. The Olam Abba is probably going to be much greater than yours. But better in the fact that you have to be doing more because it's no sacrifice. You know, you're going to tell me it's a big mitzvah, you know, you don't work on Shabbat? Years back, you didn't work on Shabbat, you didn't have a job. Nowadays, no one works on Saturdays. But you know what? It's an effort to care about Saturday, to not watch TV on Saturday. That takes an effort. Or to not respond or to not do that, it's sacrifice. Our job is to build on it. Our job is not just to take what they did and say, wow, they're great. They were great. They were unbelievable. There were people that the truth is, I wouldn't want to have been tested like that. Don't put me in America in 1940 and tell me to somehow support my family in a country that has no yeshiva, no Torah, no religion, no nothing. And if you look at all the other communities, they all couldn't handle it. You know, you have a few thousand people in Lakewood and, that, and a few modern Orthodox doxies somewhere across America, which is not doing that great. Our community was unbelievable then. The foundation that the rabbis from those times and the laymen of those times did lay was unbelievable. Our job is to continue it. And that's why the Pasuk says that we're now, the Jewish people originally, when Hashem said, who's going to donate? Call Ish. Anyone could come give. That was before the Egel. Once the Egel happened, we understood the difference between the men and the boys. We understood who were the people that were really connected and really committed who weren't. So that's why Hashem said now, not call each, not any man. It has to be from you. The Erev Rav, they're no longer part of the picture. The Erev Rav, we know now that they're not just the same, they're coming along to do the same thing. No, because when the going got tough, they fell apart. You, the people who are going to be able, the people who are going to donate to our Mishkan, are going to be the people that can create a Mishkan where the Shekhinah can rest. What's a Mishkan where the Shekhinah can rest? People who have the sacrifice. People who got it and understand what this, it takes from them and people who are willing to do it. That's why the Pasuk says, Kol Nediv Livo Yivi'eha. Yivi'eha means will be Yavi Hashem. Is that you're going to bring, Yivi'eha with a hey, you're going to bring it so that Hashem can rest on it. Not anyone can donate. Not any person, any man who has no, can just come and say, you know what, I want to be a part of the Mishkan. No, it has to be the people that are willing to sacrifice. You know, the Sforno writes that the second Beit HaMikdash, the Shekhinah did not really rest, and it was destroyed. The first Beit HaMikdash, the Shekhinah did rest, but it was not destroyed. Excuse me, the Shekhinah did rest, but it was also destroyed. The Mishkan, the Shekhinah rested and was never destroyed. It says, Hashem said, you make a binyan le'olam, and le'olam means forever and ever. That the Mishkan is still exists. It's lost, but it's not destroyed. The Mishkan was never destroyed. 
He says, why is that? He says, because in the first Beit HaMikdash, we had good leadership running it, but we didn't have great people, regular people who were building it. In the second Beit HaMikdash, we didn't have good people building it, and we didn't even have good leadership running it. Who ran the second Beit HaMikdash? Who was called, it was the, the king, Hashverosh's grandson. It wasn't Hashverosh's son. It wasn't someone who was of any greatness. The leadership wasn't good, and the builders weren't good. So it had no Shekhinah, and it got destroyed. The first Beit HaMikdash, the leadership was good, so it had the Shekhinah, but it was able to be destroyed because the builders weren't good. The Mishkan had both. The Mishkan had good leadership, and the Mishkan had good builders. And that's why it lasted forever and ever. Our community is going to last. Our community is going to continue because we had great leaders, and because we're going to continue it. And because we sacrifice, and we work hard, and we learn laws that our parents never even knew existed. And parents, what is that? It's a new thing? That's no, not a new thing. It's just 50 years ago, you couldn't tell a person how to do with the pot and all that. You were happy, like we said, that they were just Jewish. So you couldn't say, but now, we're finding out more laws because we're able to do more. The only way we can continue and keep building and be one of the greatest communities, and like I said, you go find another community in the country, maybe in the world, maybe Israel has, but outside of Israel, find another community that over the past 50 years has grown tremendously in religion. Has grown not just in number, but in religion. Where you walk around and there's classes all over the place and there's men going to classes and there's one going to, women going to classes and nights and mornings and weekends and Shabbat and shuls and I know all the problems. The other 40 weeks of the year or 50 weeks of the year we'll give classes about the problems. This week I want to focus on what we are and what we've done. And really it's not, it's every one of us who've taken that commitment to the next level, and have imbued it in our children even to another level, and who are proud of our children when they do a little more than us. And maybe 30 years ago, you went to shul, a woman opened up a siddur, it was in English, because there's no such thing as a woman reading Hebrew. Nowadays, there's no such thing as a young woman who doesn't read Hebrew. We've built, we've worked, we've fought, and we continue. That's the Mishkan, the greatest of the Mishkan, was the leadership was great, and the builders were great. I want to tell you a little... Story. It's at 12 o'clock. I'm going to tell you this story just to show you sometimes how you, know, you see, you get to see sometimes a little of the hand of Hashem in your work. This story was about a woman who today, she's alive today, today has, I think, over 100 grandchildren, 100 great grandchildren, which is beautiful. So, that's nice, right? So, she says when she first was married, she lived in Germany in like 1939. And the way it worked in Germany in the late 30s, the economy was bad, and obviously the way they treated Jews was worse. So every person had a coupon. And you went to the store with your coupon, and you were able to get specific things. Jews were not allowed to have, get oil. They were not allowed to get butter. They were not allowed to get, there's one other thing, I'm forgetting it right now. There were things that they were not allowed, Jews were not allowed to get. You were able to buy, you had a certain amount of bread, a certain amount of milk, and a certain amount of eggs. That was it. You got four eggs a month. Four eggs a month. You can't do four eggs in a breakfast, but four eggs in a month. So this woman says how each week, what she did was she would take one egg for Shabbat, and her newly married husband, she would crack the egg and make a, one cake, I don't know, babka or something like that, one little cake for her husband. That was system every week, beautiful. One week, she cracks the egg, she puts the egg in the cup, and there's a little blood spot. Ah. 
As he died, as only as she's looking at it. Come on, it's only from the rabbis. Uh, I could just take out the blood, uh, and you know, it's on the yoke, on the yellow spot. Maybe I could get a leniency. I'm sure even if I did it, the diavad is probably okay. I can't really ask a rabbi now. You know, it's the only egg I have. I'm sure it's only uh, strict. She's about to bake the cake. She says, you know what? My husband is counting on me. There's no mashgiach here in the kitchen. I'm the only one. I'm the only person here. I'm the woman of this house. We're starting our new home. I can't bake a cake with an egg like that. With tears in her eyes, she poured out the egg. So now she's thinking, she's got, what should she do? So she's trying to debate, should she get another, should she take next week's egg? She says, you know what? I'll take next week's egg. I don't know what will happen next week. Next week, I'll deal with it next week. This week, let me take next week's egg. She cracks the egg. She puts it in the cup. And there's two yolks. Little, little, just little symbol from Hashem. You know what? I'm paying attention. I see the work that you're putting in. Sometimes you see it. Sometimes you don't. But our job this month is to not just work hard. We know we're working hard. But appreciate how great of an opportunity it is. The only way you build families is through grandmas and mothers that sacrifice, that work, that have to put in effort, that we know that it's even some people are holding down a job and cleaning a house and making a sedit and it's really hard and shopping for their kids and they don't really have enough money to do it all. It's hard. It's sacrifice. It's work. It's building. And you have a chance this month to be the builders, more shir Chanukata by the David. David HaMelech never lay one brick, but he built the whole thing. You may not be able to teach your son Gemara, and you may not be able to teach by the time your daughter is getting married and having her children, she may be five times more religious than you, and may know laws that you never even heard of. But it will be out of your sweat, it will be out of your effort, it will be through your hands, through your work, you're the ones that built the Mishkan. Baruch Adonai Amen, Amen.